Obviously, on this occasion of Palm Sunday, the primary focus is the Passion Narrative, the story of the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior. And perhaps I'll suggest that a really important key to unpacking the Passion Narrative is to be attentive to issues of tone, and especially how the tone actually changes as the story progresses. Now, obviously, when we look at the overall tone of the passion narrative, the general tone of the thing is really dramatic and really somber for a really good reason, right? Because it's meant to focus again on the suffering and death of our Lord. But funny enough, when you look at the very beginning of the story, the tone is actually quite different. So it's actually kind of exciting and actually somewhat euphoric. And the reason why, of course, is because the story actually begins with Palm Sunday, the Lord's triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. And so as you might recall, Jesus rides in on that donkey and the people are cheering, they're celebrating the fact that he's finally come, and they're singing at the top of their lungs over and over again, some variation of Hosanna to the Son of David. And of course, the disciples, who are always following Jesus really closely, in a certain sense, they can't help themselves. And so they too are completely caught up in this great feeling of excitement and euphoria. And in fact, so intense is this collective feeling that even days later on the occasion of Holy Thursday, the Last Supper, St. Peter, the leader of the disciples, he takes upon himself to speak what everyone is feeling in their hearts. And so what he says is that, you know, look, I am ready, Lord, to go with you to prison and even death. And on top of that, he says, look, even if everyone in this world denies you, I will never deny you, Lord. And of course, everyone basically agrees. But then, of course, how does the Lord actually respond? It's kind of interesting. He doesn't respond by encouraging them in this direction. He doesn't respond with words of affirmation. But instead, he looks at St. Peter and says, Look, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. Now, quite apart from trying to be a celestial killjoy, I think the Lord is trying to communicate two really important things in responding to St. Peter in this way. And so first of all, I think what he's saying is that you must not confuse authentic religious devotion with emotional highs or spiritual euphoria, if you will. And so they illustrate the point. I remember years ago talking to a priest friend of mine about a retreat that he just came off of. And so basically at the end of the retreat, the retreat master told all the attendees, look, holiness is not meant to be found here. Holiness is not meant to be found in the quote-unquote mountaintop experience, whether we're talking about in the form of spiritual consolations or any form of emotional highs. Rather, holiness is meant to be found on the ground level, at the bottom of the mountain, in the context of the simple and the humble and the ordinary, and in particular in the context of the duty of the moment. In other words, holiness, and by extension religious devotion, is meant to be found in the great correspondence to, again, the duty of the moments. Where does God want me to be? What does He want me to do? And am I attentive to those duties carefully and well, moment to moment, day by day? You know, Archbishop Thomas Cardinal Collins, who of course is the Archbishop of Toronto, he has a really provocative way of expressing the same point by using the imagery of the Sacred Heart. And so basically what he says is that true devotion, true religious devotion, is reflected in a love which is steady, consistent, and even in a certain sense, kind of boring. Again, not unlike the steady beating of the Sacred Heart, as opposed, for example, to simply heaping up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, or perhaps not unlike St. Peter at the Last Supper. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing. But there's actually something else going on here. So the second reason why Jesus responds to St. Peter in this way at the Last Supper is because he's trying to teach him something really important about the nature of leadership. And in particular, what he's trying to teach him is that an important prerequisite to being a great witness and leader in the Holy Catholic Church is that you need to have humility. And by extension, you need to learn to beat down the deadly sin of pride. 
you know, to illustrate the point, there's this really great quote by the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard. And so basically what he says is that God the Father is scouring the earth, looking for people with whom he can share his power, looking for people to whom he can convey a limited share of his own power. But then he says that a lot of times this doesn't happen because God realizes that if he gave a limited share of his own power to certain people, this would cause great harm to themselves and to the people entrusted to their care. In other words, this would lead to a certain abuse of God's power. And of course, that's precisely what we see in the character arc of St. Peter. And so, for example, go back to the Last Supper, right? So Peter says, even if all these other losers basically deny you, Lord, I will never deny you, right? So he's filled with pride. He's filled with condescension towards people he perceives to be beneath him. And so the whole idea is that in that moment, he's not ready. He's not ready for leadership in the church. He's not ready to receive a limited share in the Lord's power. And quite frankly, he's not ready to be Pope. But you see, compare that now to St. Peter after the resurrection, after he has denied the Lord three times, the last time, of course, to a mere servant girl by the charcoal fire. And so this is a guy who's ready for leadership. This is a guy who's ready to receive a share in the Lord's power. And this is a guy who is finally ready to receive the mantle of the papacy. And the reason why, of course, is that finally he's humble. And so he no longer looks down to other people, but instead he realizes that he too is a fellow sinner. He too is a fellow disciple who is in desperate need of the Lord's mercy and forgiveness. And the whole point, of course, is that when it comes to evangelization, when it comes to proclaiming the good news of the gospel, this proclamation always has to be intensely personal. Because if it's not, what's the content of our proclamation? Here's a savior which you need, but I myself don't need? That doesn't make any sense. And when we proclaim the gospel in that way, our proclamation comes across as condescending, harsh, and even cruel. Okay, one final note, and I'll kind of end with this. And so basically the thing I want to suggest to you is that even though the stuff we're talking about today, especially this notion of humility being an important prerequisite to real leadership in the church, can be quite humbling and sobering, at the same time it's meant to point us towards the pedagogical function of the Lenten season. Because, you know, I think quite honestly, a lot of people have a skewed notion as to what the goal of the Lenten season is supposed to be, right? So I think a lot of people have it in the back of their minds that the whole goal of Lent, ideally, is that, you know, I arrive at the end of the 40 days and I look back and I say, you know, well done. You more or less kept your Lenten promises with regards to prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And so again, well done. You're the pinnacle of virtue and you are the model of holiness. But if you kind of stop and think about it for a moment, that sounds kind of weird, right? It sounds like you're lacking humility. It sounds like you're kind of reeking of pride. It sounds like St. Peter at the Last Supper. Even if all these people deny you, Lord, I will never deny you. And what's more, this doesn't actually match the reality of the situation. Because, of course, what typically happens during these 40 days of Lent? Well, what typically happens is that we set our Lenten promises, again, with regards to prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. But then over the course of 40 days, we realize, wow, it's really tough to keep up with these promises. And maybe I'm more of a sinner than I originally thought. Maybe I'm not as heroic as I had originally thought. But you see, the thing I want to impress upon you right now is that that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, St. Thomas actually talks about this when he says that a lot of times, God will actually allow us to fall into sin. Sometimes grievous sin, sometimes humiliating sin. Because what does he want? He wants to break us out of the deadly sin of pride, ego, and self-sufficiency. And again, in a certain sense, that's the pedagogical function, if you will, of the Lenten season. To teach us a deep sense of humility and thereby bring us back into a stance of right relationship with the Father. 
And so the moral of the story in a certain sense is that if you arrive at Holy Week and you simply have a deeper conviction that you're weak and you're frail and you desperately need God as Savior and Redeemer, well, that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good and holy place to actually be. And may God bless you all.